0: Welcome to episode 70 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels podcast, where we count down the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. This week we're talking about Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, the five-issue miniseries. And joining me today is Anthony Stoffer, whom some of you may have heard on the Daredevil's Advocate episode during pilot season, Defending Iron Fist. Welcome back, Anthony. Good to be back, Blaine. All right, so as always, we like to cover a lot of the technical details and get those out of the way first. So these five issues were written by Frank Miller, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Al Williamson, colored by Christy Shield, who often went by the name Max Scheel, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Ralph Macchio, while Tom DeFalco was acting as editor-in-chief. The cover dates range from October 1993 to February 1994, The actual release dates were on or about August 24th, 1993 to December 28th, 1993. So one of the things that we always cover is the significance of the story and these characters and why they're being discussed here, how we first got involved with it, and so forth. Now, this particular story is a retelling and reimagining of Daredevil's origin, originally conceived as a pilot episode for a TV series. And when that fell through... Frank Miller was rewriting it, and there was some debate about whether it's going to be a graphic novel or the 5 issue miniseries it became. And some of the side effects of that show up in terms of the structure and the way it's laid out, which we can get to in a little more detail later when we're going through things, and more issue by issue in a plot-synopsis basis. So, Anthony, would you like to share how you were first exposed to this miniseries? Well, in all honesty, I've been a
1: Daredevil fan ever since I was a young kid, first reading comic books, and I remember every time I'd go to pick up a comic book from the store for some reason, I just absolutely loved Daredevil. Even when i collect the Marvel cards, he was always the one that I would, uh, he was my favorite Marvel card, obviously, and when I read the back, of I can't remember which set of Marvel cards it was, and I saw that he had only a 53% win ratio, a part of me died on the inside, but from there... I've honestly been reading Daredevil comics for all of my life, so in terms of when I first read it, I can't completely remember. I'd assume it was probably in the early 2000s when I started collecting all of the graphic no- novels for Daredevil and that's probably when I stumbled upon this one you know in the fields upon fields of graphic novels I have sitting in my house so that would probably be my first exposure to it. Again it is just it's another retelling of the origin of Daredevil and I find this one to be one of the darker ones that I've read in the way that there's a lot more killing but we'll, again will it be exploring that one as we get more into the plot synopsis and where everything happens within the comic like
0: i got into daredevil seriously as a university student at the time well, the first issue i read was actually the 25 cent issue which kicked off low life during the brian michael bendis era and you know went back from there to the kevin smith run that relaunched the series of volume two read a lot of the essentials because at the time i was just buying all of those so I found this just when you know I had gotten into it from Kevin Smith through Brian Michael Bendis. I read the Frank Miller Visionaries volumes, read Born Again and was just loving the character. So first I tracked down every graphic novel I could find Then I was looking forward to the GitCorp DVD-ROM that was supposed to have all of the issues, and then Marvel pulled the license three weeks before that was completed. They had finally gotten their hands on the last two issues they needed for the full run. They were ready to scan them, and then Marvel decided to launch Digital Unlimited, so they pulled the GitCorp DVD-ROM license. So filling out my collection of Daredevil with back issues cost me so much more than I was originally hoping it would have. And I would have a complete run of Thor as well, because that was the next one they had in the pipe. They're about ten issues shy of that one.
1: Ironically, it's funny that you bring up Price. This is unrelated to Daredevil, but I really got heavily back into comics in university, and it was right after one of my relationships had ended. And all I could think to myself is, well, I don't have a girlfriend now, and, well, alcoholism is probably far too unhealthy, so I need something else to take up my money. And that's when I got heavily back into comic books. Now that I'm married, I spend money on all three of those things. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right, so we'll do a quick run-through of the synopsis for Issue 1. Sounds good. Uh, Starts with Daredevil as a child, way back when he's Matt Murdock, and Daredevil... We haven't even learned that it's a a nickname that others have given him. We see he's a bit of a sneaky kid. You know, the local police officers think he's a good kid, but he plays pranks, steals a billy club and whatnot. We find out how much respect he has for his father in a scene that was essentially stolen for the film back in 2003. When he comes home, his dad's been drunk. He's looking at a picture of someone named Maggie. Matt doesn't know who she was. Originally, that seemed inconsistent because by the time this was published, we knew that Sister Maggie was Matt Murdock's mother. We have since learned you know, that he remembers her as a child, but now that Mark Wade has been working on his run, that actually inconsistency has been cleaned up. Sister Maggie is the name she adopted when she became a nun, but she was originally Grace Murdoch. So Grace would have been the, the name Matt knew her by, and since he didn't know that she loved to become a nun, young Matt would not have known that Maggie would have been his mother. So from that scene, we cut to the Fixer and his men essentially beating up, battling Jack Murdoch, saying, you will become our enforcer, or we will hurt you and your son. So Jack gets involved specifically to protect Matt. And when Matt finally takes a stand against the bullies at school and hits one of them, his dad loses it. And this is a pivotal point for Matt. The actual captions I'm going to read, because it is so important for him. Then Dad is all tears and regret, and Matt is running from their home through the city, directionless lost. He hit me. The thought is so big, so crazy. Dad hit me. It was wrong. Dad was wrong. And if even Dad can be wrong, then anybody can do bad things. Anybody at all. The only way to stop people from being bad is to make rules. Laws. Somewhere in a long and lonely night, the boy's course is set. He will study the rules. He will study the laws. So here we see the moment when Matt decides to become a lawyer. He doesn't fight back. From the boys are after him, they nickname him Daredevil but he still takes secret time to train physically. And we learn that Stick, his mentor that was already established in Frank Miller's first run on the character, is already watching him. We see the accident where young Matt knocks the blind old man out of the way of the speeding truck and gets hit with the radioactive isotopes, which is one of the things that has always set Daredevil apart for me. He's one of the few heroes I could think of who was a hero before he got his powers. Instead of becoming a hero by choice after getting his powers, if Matt hadn't run out to save that blind old man from the truck, he never would have gotten his abilities. So that's just one of the things I've always liked about the guy. We get comments about how everything hurts, about how his blood burns, which is a nice callback to Amazing Fantasy 15 and the way radiation works. It was the same sort of comment in uh, Hulk number one, Incredible Hulk number one. That's been a consistent comment used for radiation based powers in the Marvel Universe. Matt gets a visit from Sister Maggie, but that's just left where it is. So it is designed as a TV pilot where there's elements to be picked up on later episodes. But the first issue ends with Stick introducing himself to Matt and starting the training, where he starts to use his super senses in ways that others wouldn't know. And, you know, practicing with archery and blocking attacks from Stick, running around the rooftops at night. And then as we're getting close to the end, we come back to Battling Jack Murdoch's relationship with the Fixer, where Murdoch thinks his career is turning around and he's making a comeback. And the Fixer says, oh, no, no, you're on a winning streak because the guys you were fighting against were working for me. Tonight, you're going to take a dive. I'm building you up for a big payoff. And when Battling Jack is in the ring, one of the guys says to him, this is it, Murdoch. Just give him an opening and fall down like you should think about that boy of yours. And Jack says, that's just what I'm thinking about, you bum. I'm thinking about my boy. I'm thinking my boy is out there in the audience, and I'm thinking about how I told him one thing worth a damn. I told him to never give up. Never. It's time I showed him his dad may be a loser, but he's no quitter. And Murdoch gets in the ring. He wins the fight, goes out into the alley, and takes the beating he's expecting. And the issue ends with his murder. So that's the first issue. Any specific thoughts on what we've got so far?
1: Well, in terms of a lot of the other Daredevil origin stories, one thing that this one really, really exemplified in my mind is the amount of, is a large amount of violence. Where we're introduced to the father, and all that we do is see the father, first of all, getting beat up, and then it's compl- it switches to him going and enforcing and beating other people up which goes straight into Matt Murdock in a fight where he's getting beat up, which goes straight back into him fighting back, which goes to him getting hit, which then goes to him training to, well, beat people up, which then swings right back into the fight scene where we have uh, Battling Jack Murdock, you know, losing the, or sorry, not losing the fight, but being told to throw the fight then winning the fight. And then it goes right back down to the beatdown. So as I said before, this is a very, very violent interpretation of his origin story. story and you know i realize the story within itself has to have that air of violence because his dad was beat to death but it just risks on fighting constantly and i think as we get towards the end and when we go into the further issues that's a theme that kind of carries through this entire series is just constantly fighting Another thing that sort of stands out about this origin story of him is it doesn't really establish his powers as much as other ones have, whereas before they would go and they detail the powers that he has, this one sort of just assumes that everybody knows who Daredevil is, everybody knows the power that he has, or the powers that he has, and they just sort of say, well, he had the accident, we've got that out of the way, straight into the training. And it's not really, in my mind, fully established the complete extent of his powers. And again, I'm going to be bringing that up again on the fifth issue
0: in a little bit. Yeah, it is very much, I can hear everything, I can see everything, I, or not see everything, I can hear everything, I can smell everything, and that's it. And there's not even really a, a radar sense, which is actually consistent with the way Frank Miller portrayed it, as far as Frank Miller was concerned. The radar sense wasn't a separate sense, he was just so attuned to all the other sentences, or senses that he could put the picture together. I did mention early on that there was some debate about whether this is going to be a five-issue comic miniseries or a graphic novel, and we could see some of that in the way it's structured and laid out. That comes out for the first time in this first issue. Every time we get a scene change, the scene changes in the first panel on the page, because that way, when they were structuring things for a graphic novel that actually would have been a little bit shorter, there were things like an entire Electra story we haven't heard yet that wouldn't necessarily have been included. And they did that so that these scenes could just be easily removed without having to restructure and redraw the pages. So it's another challenge that needs to be met by the artist in the way that it's being laid out, or by Frank Miller in the way he's discussing it, or the two of them together, to make sure that every new scene starts on its own page, and that they know which scenes can be cut and which scenes can stay. So a lot of this miniseries is structured around the page count, which... You get some of that in comics, but that's more, okay, you've got 20 issues to tell this story, but you can change scenes in the middle of a page if you need to. Right? You have to make sure that big surprises are not the bottom right corner of the right-hand page because they're going to be revealed two pages early when you flip that page. There are some structural things you have to watch, but not to this degree. And the fact that they did that almost transparently, I find pretty impressive. So we'll move on to issue two then.
1: Actually, just before we do that, the yeah. one other thing that uh, I'm just going to quickly bring up. And this is just something that's always sort of sat improperly with me. And it's about, I guess you could say, the quote-unquote noble sacrifice of his father to show that he's no quitter. The one thing that just always has left, left me relatively, you know, unsettled is the fact that, as evidenced by this and most of the interpretations of this, he did realize that the second he was going to throw the fight, he probably would get killed. I've always just seen that as being more abandonment than any thing in the way that he's showing that his son that he's no quitter but by the same logic he's showing his son that he's horribly horribly suicidal and he wants to you know emotionally scar his child with his father getting beaten to death and then shot yeah and i do understand the reason that they do it and i get it it's just one of those things i've never liked
0: yeah it could be one thing
1: i enjoy it more i guess when they When they downplay the fact that he thought he was going to get killed, in this one, it it really, really alludes to the fact he would know the consequences of his actions, as opposed to some other interpretations, where it was sort of, he thought he was just going to get beat up, or he thought that something else was going to happen, he didn't
0: realize that he'd end up dead. In
1: this one, it really seems like he's begging for his death.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. The other incarnations, you could believe he was expecting a beatdown that he could heal and eventually walk away from. This one, no. He he does not expect to leave that alley in one piece. He knows he's leaving it in a bag, which would have been a little bit different had Matt's mother still been involved. The theme of this one is abandonment.
1: Matt's mother leaves him and his father leaves him.
0: And soon we'll
1: find out, Electra leaves him. <laughs>
0: well, speaking of Electra, issue number two. All right. So the second issue begins with Matt Murdock, who's decided to dedicate his life to the rules and the laws, withholding information from the police, saying he has no idea why his father was killed, and then going out and taking some personal revenge. So this is one of those early moments where we can see how hypocritical Matt Murdock can be as a human being. He starts off with just a couple of thugs, Mikhail and Gillian, and beats them down to the point where they believe it's his father doing it. Then he tracks down Slade, who was one of the main enforcers, as well as Marcello, kills the lights in the gym and takes the two of them out. And does so quite brutally. I mean, Anthony's already mentioned the degree of violence here. There's one panel where Matt breaks Slade's leg by kicking him in the knee. And looking at it, Slade is a very hairy individual. But there's one point where there is no hair. And if we look at it, it almost seems like Ramita drew it so that we'd see part of the bone coming out of the back of his leg when he was kicked. There's just a little hairless and jagged piece, but it's been colored as skin, which makes me wonder, was this a Comics Code Authority thing, saying, no, 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 you can't show the bone, and they try to detract from that? Because there's a definite separation there. So it is, as Anthony has said, this is the most violent interpretation of Daredevil's origin that I've ever seen published, and I'm pretty sure I've seen them all. Even after doing that, when the guy's on the ground crying in pain, Matt pulls out a roll of pennies into his fist, and just starts beating him across the face, keeps kicking him in the ribs. And does it knowing that, you know, the Fixer was there and he's witnessing it and knowing full well he's got the skills to track him later. So he tracks the Fixer and his driver Angelo. They're driving, Matt's on foot, and he still tracks them down, catches up, uses the baseball bat he brought to smash through the windshield of the car, and chases the Fixer into the subway. Which is a scene kind of reminiscent, again, of the 2003 film. But instead of leaving Mr. Casada, the rapist, on the train tracks to get run over by the train, the fixer ends up dying of a heart attack. Which, again, it's just flushing out and adding additional details to the origin as Stan Lee told it back in 1964. We cut from the hospital to Matt tracking down Angelo, who was the driver, the last guy left. And he's in basically a brothel, house of ill repute, whatever you want to call it. And when he breaks in and goes after Angelo, they say, well, why are they here? It's, we're paid up. There should be no raid. And they oh, he's not a cop, and decide to kill him. And, you know, trying to pull his mask off, he's getting overwhelmed by the smell of perfume and all the, the makeup and everything. He thrashes almost blindly in self-defense and knocks a woman out the window and hears her giving a quiet and useless prayer on the way down rather than screaming. And he freaks and just leaves. Now, at this point, Stick has abandoned him. Matt doesn't yet know why. And Stick and Stone, who were established in Frank Miller's run, Stone has not been established here, they have a conversation letting you know that there's something dark coming, that a lecture was their only other chance and she's been swayed, and Stick is saying, no, Matt Murdock is not the guy we need. Cut ahead to Columbia University a year later, make a note that was Columbia at this point, and we get our first introduction to Franklin P. Nelson, better known as Foggy, running from a bully. And Matt does not care for bullies and actually leaves the bully tied up and naked outside in the snow, and makes it clear to him that much worse will happen if he doesn't start treating Foggy with respect, which is the response. We see a classmate named Kathy hitting on Matt, but he can't allow himself to respond to her, he can't allow himself emotion. He's learned that the cost of that is too great. We see him sharing a room with Foggy, and he's just having a hard time sleeping with all the noise and all the environment, because the world is never quiet for Matt Murdock. So he goes out and joins what he calls the celebration of all the night sounds, running across rooftops, across high wires, doing a lot of the acrobatics. This is where he meets Elektra for the first time. And this is the first indication of just how screwed up Elektra is. So he chases her out to the park, has a couple stumbles along the way. He's still learning. He's not the daredevil that he's going to be. And she's leaving what he considers to be a trail of clothes. So, you know, he has a certain impression about what's going on. And the police stop him. And he just goes along in complete cooperation. He's unwilling to fight back after what happened to the prostitute who was attacking him earlier. And he realizes that Electra set him up. So what was not an invitation to a very personal date, it was actually framing him for a rape. Or an accused assault at the very least. The police let him go when they realize there's no girl, there's nothing, and Matt realizes she enjoyed every second of that. She shows up later, pulls up a sports car right in front of Foggy and Matt, and Matt just jumps into this convertible sports car in the middle of winter, and they take off. Much to Foggy's surprise. And Electra takes every risk you can think of. But Matt is still haunted by the woman that he accidentally killed earlier this issue. Skin, so, any specific thoughts on issue two?
1: Oh wow, where do I even begin on this one? Again, as I said before, this is an ultra, ultra violent, dark interpretation of Matt Murdock. And one of the things about this that... I really, really question is just his complete willingness to kill in this interpretation. And it's very, very evidenced by this that he is willing to kill. As you said, Earlier on, when he was trying to get vengeance for his father, he beat all of the people to the point of death or near death. You can never be completely sure, but from looking at the panels and the issues, it doesn't exactly look like they're going to be recovering anytime soon, if recovering at all.
0: Yeah, it, it definitely appears as though the only way they're getting out of that is if someone gets them an ambulance pretty quickly. Yeah, they're, they're not going to walk away on their own.
1: And when the fixer is going down and he's having the heart attack. You know, as you said, uh, there's the allusion to the Daredevil film where he's standing there and he lets the guy die from the subway hitting him. The Fixer goes down with a heart attack and he pretty much takes a glee with it as thinking that vengeance is done and vengeance has been fulfilled for the Fixer. But going back to the original scene from the Daredevil comic where that came from, that's when he rescued Bullseye which is very very interesting uh juxtaposition because in the comic when that first scene that they keep on going back to was introduced he saved essentially one of his greatest villains at the time who would later go and kill electra as retribution for being saved by daredevil in that exact moment and it wasn't until bullseye killed electra that that pushed it to the point that matt murdoch was willing to let him go but that's a different comic for a different time which we will We'll get to later. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is just he's a lot more willing to go through violence and to kill in this one as opposed to, you know, other interpretations. It's been very, very adamantly shown, especially in a lot of the comic books, that there's Punisher who's willing to go around killing people and there's Daredevil that doesn't. And they've had many, many conflicts throughout the years because of that simple fact. So I thought that was... You know, I just, that was one of the things that really stood out to me. As you said, and I hadn't known this until he brought it up, that this was going to be used for a TV pilot. I think that's evidenced by the scene where Stick and Stone are sitting there talking about how they have Elektra, how they have uh, Matt Murdock, and how he's being trained for a higher purpose, and then it's just left alone. So you can tell that there's seeds for other things, because had it just been a five-issue miniseries with no other intentions, I don't think that ambiguity of the higher purpose would have
0: had a necessary meaning. Yeah, there, there's a lot of dangling plot threads by the end of this five-issue series, and that really, it was structured to be picked up on in later episodes. And that is something that is definitely coming through here. And I think that's also why we're seeing a more violent Matt Murdock. This is not intended to be the same Matt Murdock we see in the comics. I mean, the, the scene we're talking to earlier, where Matt pulls Bullseye off the train tracks and saves his life, was also written by Frank Miller. So this is that same writer, he understands the Matt Murdock of the comics. He was writing a different version of Matt Murdock for a different medium and a different continuity. Oh, no,
1: absolutely. And uh, just going back to the TV pilot thing again. It's funny because this would have been a TV show in the 90s. In the 90s, this TV show probably would not have worked at all because it was just far too dark. And that's also evidenced by a TV show like Prophet that was just simply too dark for its time. But if a TV show like this, with this interpretation, were to be released today, it would probably go over very, very well just because we are far more accustomed to that dark tone. And um as I said as I was reading this, This is very, very narrative-driven as well. There's a lot of those little boxes, uh, setting up thoughts. So, you know, in its time as a TV show, it probably would have failed. But during the time we're in right now, it probably would have done
0: quite well. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if we see a lot of influence from this miniseries on the upcoming Netflix series. Mm, Very, very true. Very, very true. We've already seen some images of the costuming. That miniseries is about three months away at the time of this recording. But the costume that we see Daredevil see, or Daredevil wear in the early images from that miniseries, is very much this costume. Not the one in this issue, but in the one in the last couple of issues of this miniseries.
1: Hmm. Now, um, continuing on, you get to the scene where Matt's in law school, and throughout this miniseries, there are a lot of time jumps, and they're never really explicitly stated. It just kind of goes, he's a kid, and even from when he's a kid, to his dad dying, to him seeking vengeance, it is kind of hard to decipher how much time has passed in between him being a kid, him seeking vengeance for his father, and then all of a sudden, he's law school. So there's quite a few years that have passed within the span of a couple of pages of comic and especially between, you know, within these two issues that we've gotten through so far. But our introdu- uh, introduction to Foggy shows him being beat up in the merciless nod nerds versus jocks way where uh, these guys are trying to run him down in a car. And then we get introduced to, you know, Matt basically going through vigilante justice on the person that was responsible for it, which, in a way, if you think about it, is kind of funny, because they're all in law school, and they're supposed to be the best of the best, so you've got nerds picking on nerds here, but this is also, you know, after the late 80s, still in the early 90s, where that whole idea of nerd versus jock was still really, really heavily embroiled in pop culture.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely there in the, the Columbia University scenes, which... As you said, the timeline is wonky. This started when Matt was in grade school or elementary school, whatever you call it, in your region. One year after Matt gets vengeance on the guys who took out his father, he's a university student. Now, it has been established in the main continuity that Matt did skip a few grades. And that was done primarily because he's got an age quoted in Daredevil number 1 in 1964 that does not work if you go through K-12 to plus law school at the particular, or at the normal pace. I think he was 24 or 25, but he was certainly early 20s. So they just decided in the end, no, he was a bright kid. He ended up skipping grades and just flying through and, you know, did high school by correspondence on his own time and did it in about a year, which helps establish how intelligent Matt Murdock is and fix the timelines, which we'll see some of here because there was another bit of a jump. As we mentioned in issue two, he's in Columbia. Later on, when he graduates with his law degree, he graduates from Harvard. So there's a bit of a jump there. Now... Getting back onto the comics. So we see him extract the vengeance
1: for um Boggy and then the girl that tries to pick him up because Matt Murdock is so dreamy. Little does she know? Had he actually accepted that date, she probably would have ended up dead because that's just how all of his girlfriends end up. Maybe in a mental institution if she got lucky. But him not going on that date with her, in my mind, was just him saving her life. He had to know. <laughs> yeah, I think...
0: The only woman he's ever dated who came out of that relationship okay was Black Widow.
1: And that's going so far as to say that Black Widow doesn't have emotional problems. She did date an alcoholic Tony Stark.
0: Oh, there was that. There was the issues with Ivan, her father figure, being interested in her. She dated Hawkeye when she and Hawkeye were villains. I think the main reason that she didn't come out from her relationship with Matt worse for wear is because she was already so screwed up. That should not have a, l- a lot of places to go.
1: Yeah, fair enough. You can't make more crazy crazy. Yeah.
0: And then there's, well, we'll talk about Karen Page in detail in uh, episode four of this countdown when we hit Daredevil Born Again. Uh, Heather Glenn dumps Matt and goes on to Tony Stark as well. So Tony does well with Matt's cast-offs.
1: <laughs> I wonder, you have to wonder if that's what turned
0: him to be an alcoholic. You know, I think Heather, was. that was after Demon in the Bottle. So he oh, was trying was... to be cleaned up. Yeah, my bad. My bad. Now... Yeah. There's Yeah, there's Mila. Kirsten McDuffie is okay so far, but... Matter of time. Matter of time. <laughs> yeah, she may kind of come out of the Mark Wade run okay. I wouldn't put bets on the next writer, whoever that may be. At the time of this recording, that hasn't been announced.
1: So now we jump ahead, Matt Murdock, running around, running around, running around, feeling free, feeling free, feeling free, and then we get the introduction of Electra. Now, I realize it's a comic book, and even though they're running around in New York right now,
0: wherever Columbia University is, I admit... My U.S. geography is weak,
1: as is mine incredibly. So they're running around in a rather large city. I've always just loved the completely random occurrence that you can be running around in downtown in a large city and just happen to run into each other. Now... Obviously, later on, there's the hint that Elektra was setting Matt up, so she may have been hunting him explicitly, which means that he was probably doing these midnight run-arounds quite, com- uh, quite commonly. But as we continue on through this, we get our first introduction to Elektra. Now, my personal favorite interpretation of the relationship that Matt and Elektra have had was in Ultimate Daredevil Elektra, that quick miniseries, just because that one made them appear as two starstruck lovers who just really, really fell for each other, and a lot of horrible, horrible circumstance drove them apart. As opposed to this one, where Elektra is kind of just a big bag of crazy and Matt turns into a big bag of crazy and they kind of just go around in a really big bag of crazy in this one. Elektra comes off more psychopath than she comes off hot chick. That's my interpretation, you know. If I was
0: Matt Murdock at this point, I'd be kind of looking for a way off the crazy train. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimate Daredevil Elektra are very much like a Romeo and Juliet type story. Man Without Fear, Daredevil and Elektra are more single white female. That being said, I still like this introduction of
1: Daredevil and Elektra far more than the one that happened in the movie, where they fought in the playground. I'll give you
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I did some Googling while Anthony was talking there. Columbia University is in the city of New York, 116th and Broadway.
1: Oh, if only I wasn't so far out of university. I could go and try to live the life of Daredevil, or rather Matt Murdock at the time. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Blaine brought up the point. So what happens when he jumps into the car, Elektra's driving crazy in the middle of winter in a convertible, drives through a forest, all the way up to a cliff, and then just for funsies, she jumps off the cliff, which is what, you know, flashes Matt back to the female that was falling through the window. Um... We don't get to the aftermath of this at this point. And, you know, as I read this in graphic novel, I just quickly reread it before we did this podcast. The way that they ended it with her jumping off the cliff and the scene of him flashing back and falling is actually a lot more powerful in issue form than it was in graphic novel form. Because in graphic novel form, you saw, well, she's falling, 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 to next scene she was just kind of playing And I think that loses a lot of the power of what they were trying to build up with this. So in terms of issue to graphic novel, if you read this in graphic novel, I think you lose
0: quite a bit from that scene. I would agree. And I would actually say that this is probably the only issue where the ending is better read in issue form than the graphic novel form. Some of the other breaks, it seems like that's just how they managed to get the scenes to fit. So that's where the issue ends. It's... You know, doesn't have quite the same emotional punch as this one does.
1: Yeah, but um Well again through the next issue, I believe it is, we're gonna get back to the big bag of crazy that Electra is. <laughs> so shall we continue? Might as well.
0: Yeah. The third issue opens Splash Page of Electra falling, uh, with some interesting anatomy in her short skirt as she's falling off this cliff in the snow. Yeah, it's where we see thigh we would not see thigh, but comics go to authority, so we see thigh. And she goes through the ice into water, Matt goes in after her, realizes how much problems there are, realizes he can't chase her because he he can't smell her, and when he comes up for air, she has made it all the way to the top of the cliff and is driving away, which tells us that at least one of two things is true. Electra can cl- climb cliffs exceptionally fast, or Matt can hold his breath for a really, really long time. Well, in defense, it does say that he goes up for a quick breath of air and then goes back down.
1: He can still hold it for a really, really long time. Or maybe, who knows, maybe Electra was going to have some Nightcrawler properties in this interpretation later on down the line. They gave them to Deadpool. Yes, you can argue body slide by one, but it was still a horrible use of it, the power in the movie. Yeah. From here,
0: this page, I believe, is actually the the end of that scene, I think, is the only scene that where the change happens in the middle of the page. And that's when Matt returns to the dorm, he's been swimming. And I think part of the reason that they did that and they're doing these shift these page shifts in the middle, these pages were added later when they had decided this is going to be a mini-series and not a graphic novel. They really expanded the Electra part of the story in this. So they knew with these pages it was going to be all or nothing. So they do have the freedom to break it up a little bit further. Anyway, Matt finds out where Electra lives and breaks in checks out her trophies he knows that she's athletic he knows she can fight he fights off security guards and security dogs and speaking of his willingness to kill i would say that the security guard that he kicked through the window by the throat probably fell about four stories worth yeah that's a safe bet yeah it, it's one room with a very tall ceiling but very tall ceiling it's probably about four stories lands on the piano and Electra keeps playing
1: now i'm just going to jump in here for the one thing just because Out of this entire comic, I think this is probably the scene that bothers me the most, where he kicks the guy through the window, and the guy most likely falls to his death. Because it seems that Matt Murdock only gets these horrible flashbacks of knocking a girl out a window where she falls to her death, when it's a girl that's falling. Apparently for men no issue. And he has to have the realization that he's in the wrong for breaking into the house, as is evidence later, where he admits to the fact that he broke the rules to break into the house and people were punished for it, not the security guard, but himself. And I just don't really like the way that they did this scene where his body goes crashing through because, you know, the big scene of regret that he has from the second issue
0: now is almost a throwaway in the third issue. <laughs> yeah, even we do have some regret. There's a little bit, of a silhouette of the woman falling that he's thinking of, you know, as he's escaping. So this guy falling did remind him of the woman falling. The physics geek in me is wondering how the piano survived. Because the security guard that kicked out by the throat landed on the stained glass paneled ceiling hard enough to break not just the glass, but some of the rods holding the panes of glass together. And then he fell down and landed on the piano after quite a bit. So this guy's got momentum. The piano should have been destroyed. The fact that it wasn't was specifically just so they could say Electra keeps playing towards Crescendo, towards Climax. So this is the first strong indication of what's in Electra's future where they talk about how, you know, the the evil has already started to reach to her. She is quite literally getting off on Matt killing the security guards and breaking in to chase her. She likes causing this destruction directly or indirectly. Now, Matt goes home with a bullet in his arm, cleans the wound, traces himself, and she beats him to his apartment and is in the shower when he gets there. And, you know, Foggy shows up. He's wondering why it's taking so long for Matt to answer the door and why he's locked out. You know, Matt said he would be a minute. He's going, you know, I'm not counting, pal, but you said one minute, not 20. What the devil could Matt be doing in there? And then Electra leaves. And when Foggy enters the apartment or their dorm room, it is a shambles. So Electra apparently has multiple destructive appetites. As we see quite clearly when she leaves goes downtown into what appears to be a pretty seedy section of New York, and she gets some guys to follow her into the alley. And this is where we see that she's got massive problems, not just toying with danger and getting other people into trouble. We find out that she's been to psychiatrists because she hears voices, and she's convinced they're real and everyone else is wrong when they say that they're not. And the voices want her to kill innocent people, but she chooses who she kills instead, takes some guys who like women and don't like no for an answer, and decide they're just going to have her way with her, and she just tears through them. There is nothing left of these guys. She kills all five in one of the way it's choreographed. I would be surprised if this fight in live action would last two minutes. She's moving from one to the other, and that's one thing. When you've got John Romina on art, you can be assured that the action sequences are going to move and flow. So she kills these guys... The police took 20 minutes to arrive. She waited for them to see them arrive. Then she hails a cab. She found it a disappointing workout after killing these five people. that In her mind, that's what this was. This was a workout. So she tracks Matt down. They have a totally different kind of workout in the gym. Matt is so preoccupied. He's not paying attention in his classes. Now we get the return of Stick. Stick is coming late in the night saying, that girl is poison. She is on her way to the worst side and she will drag you down with her. It's bad enough you failed me. I want to have you joining the enemy. I'll kill you first, so stay away from Electra. This is the second indication that there's a greater enemy out there and has its fingers in Electra. So again, they're setting something up that does not get followed through in this miniseries. So from there, they definitely do not split up. They go to a private skiing lodge. And once again, he's punished for letting his wild part run free and for breaking the rules. Because that's... I don't know, this is a very interesting death of her father scene. There, we know her father dies, but that's about all we know. What we hear is, do you see now, Matt? I love Papa, and so he died. He had to die. I was a part of him. They killed him to show me this.
1: And in this scene, it really, especially, or at least to me, it's really setting up that she killed him, or the voices in her head told her to kill them. And yeah, when I read through this again this morning, that was a very, very interesting change, especially since she's being introduced to such
0: a, such a psychopath. Yeah, so this this removes the kingpin's hand from it up to this point, or at least it appears to. It sounds like, you know, she didn't kill him directly. It was the hand, which is where, in retrospect, we can say, you know, having read other Daredevil comics. Yeah, it was the hand that's manipulating her. It's the hand that did this to her father. If you were to pick up The Man Without Fear, knowing it's an origin story, and this is your only exposure to Daredevil, there'd be a lot of confusing scenes in here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is one of them. And then the issue ends... With the current kingpin, who's an old school, noble criminal, saying we're going to stick with the old rackets. We're not going to murder children. We will not cater to unholy perversions. We will not infect our neighborhoods with crap cocaine. We may be criminals, but we are not monsters. And then he, someone says right-hand man, the only man he trusts. So the first we see the kingpin are his hands coming out of the dark to snap his boss's neck, take the rose out of the lapel, and take over as the kingpin of crime. And that wraps Issue 3.
1: Now, I'm going to talk a bit... I already talked a bit about uh, my interpretation of Issue 3, so I'll pick up after he got out of the... um out of Electra's house, and he was shot, and he's bleeding, and he's getting home, and he's bleeding, and then he gets off, and it alludes to the fact that clean the wound, stop the bleeding, stay conscious, stay conscious, so he's obviously lost a lot of blood. It's amazing how much a hot chicken in your shower will get that blood flow going right over again, because he's probably lost a good couple of pints, but I guess Stick's training came in quite handy in more ways than one. So then we have electra leaving the hotel room mad all happy cause he just got some and electra then goes into the alley and this is where again her psychopathic tendencies as blaine talked about come through where she taunts them she strips down the guys want to obviously rape her and then she murders all of them. Now one thing that I am going to quickly speak to, and this is one of those wonderful misconceptions. The first time I ever saw it was, I believe, in the movie The Last Boy Scout with Bruce Willis. I did enjoy that movie. I have no idea why. And she kills one of the guys by jamming his nose and making the nose go through his brain, which would kill him. Heavy, heavy misconception that's in a lot of movies and shows up again and again and again. The nose is primarily cartilage. There is no way you can hit somebody in the nose to have it jam into their brain and kill them. So please, we need to stop this belief now. This is a public service announcement. All that it's doing is getting little kids in elementaries across the world beat up for thinking that this actually can happen. So that's just a pet peeve of mine whenever I see that. So one of the other things that Blaine uh, didn't mention about after she had beat up and murdered all of these people is she wrote i love new york in their blood across the wall which just goes to show that she'd be crazy and then we flash to you know her and matt murdoch dancing around now when stick uh comes into the room and tells matt to stay away from electra he says yes it had to be a dream how could electra be evil As we know, Matt loves chasing the tail, and he does blind himself, Eh, pun but he blinds himself to, I guess, a lot of things whenever he gets a new girlfriend, and this happens every time he gets a new girlfriend in the comic books. He all of a sudden becomes oblivious to everything. I think this is one of those cases... Where it's just not possible. After all of the scenes that they had where she almost drove off a cliff, and at this point she's tried to frame him for killing somebody, and realistically tried to murder him a couple of times, (laughs) that he could be like, but she seems so nice. So... I, I, I think they could have played that scene slightly differently, but I'll give it to them because they go right into, you know, the love scene and them sitting there, you know, again, the hypersexuality that they obviously have at this point, and he's completely in love with this girl. And then she just kind of ups and leaves, which leads to the introduction of the Kingpin, where Kingpin goes and he snaps the neck. And then this just sort of shows how merciless the Kingpin is. And that actually ends it. So right into the next issue unless Blaine has anything else to say.
0: No, I think that's
1: about it. A whole bunch of boning and killing.
0: Yep, and establishing that at least in this version of the origin story, the hand got their fingers into Electra and started influencing her much earlier than in other incarnations. Oh, again, right. yeah. yeah, she's already, she's already off her rocker. It would have been nice that, you know, if that scene with Stick had ended, not with Matt saying, but how could she be evil with, you know, I, I see the warning signs, but I can't help myself something along those lines.
1: Yeah, I'm
0: addicted or something along those. Exactly. Yeah. In any rate, issue four begins with the new crime scene in New York. And the kingpin is very, very merciless. He will do anything for the profits. Now, this is where Matt Murdock graduates summa cum laude from Harvard Law School. So at some point he shifted from Columbia to Harvard. We don't know where, he ends up in Boston working for Sussman and Castra. He's not happy, but he's busy. He gets takes a case that brings him back to New York. He finds himself wandering Harold's kitchen. Some local thugs try to take advantage of him and steal his very nice suit, and he puts them all down quite definitively. And it's just being taunted by the name Daredevil. They call him Daredevil again, and he takes it out on them and really beats them brutally. Though, that being said, man, what a horrible choice of
1: words. Had they called him a loser, a wimp, blindy, yeah, Batman.
0: Yeah, it's just, it, it was the wrong chord to strike with him, and it's such an obscure term. We do find out, a few pages later, when Matt is dealing with someone who claims to be an orphan, that the reason the neighborhood kids were calling him Daredevil is because his dad used to use Jack the Devil Murdoch, as one of his identities, sort of, you know, playing up to the crowds and trying to keep his career going when he was fading, he dressed up as a devil, kind of like wrestlers tend to do now in the choreographed, male-oriented soap opera. Sports is. entertainment, Blaine. Sports entertainment. Okay, however you want to refer to it. <laughs> Sports entertainment, Blaine. Sports entertainment. Okay. I'll. I will give them credit for the athleticism. It, you know, if you're when you see wrestlers lifting a two hundred pound man over their head, they're really lifting a two hundred pound man over their head. It would, I think, just be a little more sporting if they didn't know who was going to win the match before it started.
1: Hence the term entertainment, but that's going to get us into a debate that's away from Daredevil. Yeah.
0: So Matt dresses up as this, and this is how we find that they nicknamed him Daredevil. One of the other few scene changes, and that's in the middle of the page is Matt hooks up again with Foggy, and we get a little bit more of their history. And he gets into something that's not going to make him rich, but is noble and is fighting for the right cause. And he gets so involved in it that we'll ultimately learn it's almost jeopardizing his other job. Where they're either saying, you know, you're, you're done there. You need to come back now by this time or you're fired. We learn a little bit more about the kingpin and just the lengths he's willing to go to. They need to cut down on some profitability. One of the first things that he cuts down on is a simple order for cutting costs in the film division. After all, the product is not art, and for all the scenes of perversion and torture and murder, there is no need for special effects. Just quickly to intersect for a sec. In a, a amidst our
1: debate about sports entertainment versus, you know, wrestling and outcome, I believe that we skipped over the introduction of
0: Mickey. Yeah, we did say that, you know, this is what he learned when with the girl who was claiming to be an orphan when he became a Oh, her. yeah, sorry. Yeah. But... Just a toss, and then uh, Mickey is in here. Yeah, and she does train with him. He shows her a little bit of what he can do when she fires a slingshot at him, and he catches the projectile in midair. But she ends up being one of the, the young kids that gets captured by the Kingpin's people and targeted to be part of these films. Matt finds her hat, finds the ballpoint pen. Turns out Mickey's real name is Dominique Morin, finds her home address, gets there soon enough to hear the parents receiving the ransom call. Because the thugs who picked her up realized they weren't going to get paid in full. They weren't going to have as many drugs as they wanted. So they're looking for a bigger score. Now, Mickey's parents don't think there's anyone who can help them. And that is probably one of the best splash pages, I think, in the comic. The whole miniseries. Daredevil on the corner of the rooftop. And there's a speech balloon coming from the window below him saying, There's nobody who can help us. And we see Matt there listening. So he goes to the gym. He starts putting the pieces together. He starts tracking these guys down. The Kingpin's not happy with the thug who's trying to pick up one of his performers, trying to make a little money on the side, and he gives him the authority to show them it's not wise to deviate from the Kingpin's rules. So Matt follows Mickey's father as he's making the ransom drop. He follows the thugs back, just in time to see the guy get killed by Larks, who is Kingpin's right-hand man who was given the authority to shut all these guys down. Matt reveals himself and ends up dodging some bullets, manages to escape, and he's out there trying to find a way to find Mickey. And this is the first time we see him in the outfit that will become the the outfit that's you know referenced in the upcoming Daredevil miniseries. He tracks them close enough to figure out something is going on. He's got a series of warehouses. He doesn't know what's going on, but Mickey knows Matt can hear things others can't hear. She starts singing. They don't say what she's singing, but it's gotta be something that's well known because every kid in all of these warehouses starts singing the same song in unison. And that's enough for Matt to track them down. And he starts tearing through these guys just one after another back to sticks training we don't know really how many of them survive we don't know if matt cares how many of them survive what we know is that he's taken everybody on the perimeters out everyone except for two men that are on the dock the rest are inside make no sound concentrate he's going for the last two guys on the dock and the issue stops more than it ends this is one of the ones where I, i feel this is meant to be a longer action sequence conceived for the graphic novel that didn't work as well in the transition to the the mini series format.
1: Now, in this issue This is a very, very fast-paced issue, and they cram a lot of information into a very, very small bit of time, because it jumps from him being this lawyer to all of a sudden going back, then establishing a relationship with Mickey, and realistically, the relationship he establishes with Mickey is pretty much two pages of the comic book, where it says, okay, then we train together, and then all of that, so they're just saying... Met her, great relationship, becomes kind of like a father figure, and then I believe it's this issue where she alludes to the fact that she has a crush on him. So, yeah. so right before she's grabbed, she does allude to the fact that she has a crush on them, and then all of a sudden you have Matt going to try to rescue her, and then she starts singing the song. The plot device where Kingpin makes his first mistake by trying to cut costs in the film division... I can't help but to feel there could have been a better way that they could have had his master plan start to go wrong. I don't know, stealing random children, trying to extort their parents for money without necessarily the film thing tossed into there, because... It just, it doesn't seem like it's a very good master plan that they're going to abduct these children to put them in films to be murdered, beat, or whatever it is, and they're going to be films, so when the missing persons ad comes up, and then later the parents go to watch that
0: film for an escape and see their child getting murdered
1: they'll probably know who to go back to on
0: that one. <laughs> yeah, I get the same impression that these would be snuff films that are not going to be on the common market. So most of these parents are not going to see those movies anyway.
1: Fair enough, but, but yeah, snuff films, again, are a very, very odd place to start cutting costs.
0: Yeah, they did make it very clear in the last issue that kidnapping children is one of the businesses that the other bombsters are trying to get into. This could have just been straight up black market orphans, you know, the exportation of children. There's a lot that they could have done. Yeah, Kingpin could have had plans that got contradicted anyway.
1: Now another thing that uh, really sort of stands out about this, and it's sort of come up in some places, but I think one of the biggest places where it comes up is when Mickey's hat hits his leg, and he realizes that he's it's Mickey's hat, and he as he picks it up. Throughout all of these issues, the one sense that they have played down is he doesn't have his sense of smell, or they don't refer to him using his sense of smell, like the scent of Mickey is on this hat, because that is one of the things. uh, The scent, I believe, is only referred to when he smells Electra in the air, and I think that's the only time throughout these five issues where he brings it up, and that's before he knows it's Electra. He just says, I can smell female.
0: Yeah, there's also... When he was being attacked by the prostitutes and accidentally killed the one, there was oh, the, yeah. the overwhelming stench of perfume. But, frankly, with, with that many women in the room who are going to be using a lot of perfume in their line of work, possibly to cover the stench of their own clientele, you know, everyone would react to that. So yeah, why yeah. there's still a victorious secret in Vegas that does very, very well. It's one of those things where I've actually been more satisfied by this miniseries since learning it was intended as a TV pilot, because I can look at that and say, well, you know what? Sound is easier to convey on screen than smell. Yeah. So I think that was a conscious choice to change it for the medium. But when we're getting it in comic form and not in the television medium, it really does feel like it's an adaptation from film or TV and doesn't quite gel as a comic. We could tell that that's not the medium that this story was conceived for.
1: No, absolutely. I agree with uh, Blaine about the splash page of Matt standing on the roof. That is probably one of the most powerful scenes or powerful pages that does exist in this entire miniseries because you have, you know, the stoic hero standing there ready to exact his form of justice upon all the people so then we get through to the chase and destruction 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 death 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 we get the introduction to who's going to be now the main villain who ever so fittingly for the early 90s has the long blonde hair and wearing the sunglasses and then he starts shooting at Matt, and then Matt puts on the costume, and it's the black costume that Blaine was referring to. Now, every time I see this black costume, I think of back into the good old trial of the Incredible Hulk, where Daredevil and Matt Murdock was the lawyer. And, you know, that I guess as well, kind of ironically, was going to be a TV series or the pilot for a TV series for a Daredevil spinoff that never
0: came to fruition. Yeah, it was intended as a backdoor pilot. Just as the death of the Incredible Hulk was supposed to be a backdoor pilot for Thor and Nick Fury, Doctor Strange, and Captain America, all their attempts in the 70s. The second attempt of the Wonder Woman pilot actually worked, as did the Incredible Hulk pilot, but yeah, the others not so much.
1: No matter how much I would have loved seeing that Thor running around on my TV screen, or it's funny that you bring up the Doctor Strange movie just because I've watched it and man, it was just bad. (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, it's Benedict Cumberbatch now, so.
1: Here's to hoping. Here's to hoping.
0: Yeah, and I've got other ideas with remember you've seen Benedict Cumberbatch, but that's very off-topic in this podcast.
1: No, very, very true. So we get back to the comic. Uh, Daredevil go all smashy-smashy, or rather Matt Murdock at this point goes all smashy-smashy, chasing after Mickey. And she starts to sing, and then all of the children start to sing together. I don't know all kids singing together just a bit too cheesy for me but i really do understand what they're trying to establish there and we have him finding out that he knows where mickey is evil guy smokes heartbeat smashy smashy killy killy and that comes to the end of the issue one thing of note here is we also start to see his iconic billy club now obviously not the one that he uses in today's modern day comics but he is using a billy club as a weapon so we do get that introduction to that weapon
0: yeah, and that actually starts with the, the thugs in the alley who call him Daredevil. Earlier in this issue, he actually broke his cane in half to use the two halves in the way you'd use a billy club. Yeah. And it worked out well enough if he did it here. But Yeah, they did a nice job of setting it up. It is an origin story. So moving on to issue five, it starts with Matt going after those two guys on the docks and a splash page of him in the black uniform, which is now being colored more brown, very dark brown. And Matt comes, the other guys just barely hear him. Before he knocks them into the water. And i got to say, that is some impressive training to go charging across a wooden dock and not be heard. Oh, if you look, he is wearing sneakers. (laughs) (laughs) He is. And some of it could be speed because there is a creak and they go, do you hear something? And by the time they turn around, he's moved about half the length of the dock. So he could just be very quick. So Matt's down there, realizes that these guys are down there with a bag of grenades, yanks the pin and just leaves it to blow. So again, his intention was to kill those two. We see him jumping into a very large mob of these villains and just laying the smack down and crushing them all. Two of them come after him with a truck and start shooting at him. And he manages to avoid all this and starts to lose track of Mickey. But he does catch up with her because Larks grabbed her and running away. I'm not sure how Larks knew that it was Mickey herself that was doing this aside from them. Well, I guess it was established because she was telling Larks, "Oh no, Matt's going to come from you, don't know what he can do. So I guess that's it. But they're coming after Matt. The police catch up with him and he allows them to capture him because he's not going to break the rules until he hears Mickey scream. Then she's got the lock on him. He escapes police custody. Lark kills a cabbie to steal the cab, says it was nothing. They're being chased and Matt shows up and he's saying, let her go. I don't want to kill you. Let her go. Repeating that over and over. Now, this miniseries was published after the Anosenti run had begun. And one of the things that Anosenti established was that Matt Murdock is not faster than bullets, but he's faster than arms and trigger fingers. So he's good enough to know which angle the bullet is going to be shot at and when they're going to pull the trigger and where that bullet is going to be so he can use his billy club to deflect bullets because his billy club is already in motion to where it needs to be at that point. With this miniseries, we don't see the training for that. He just knows how to do it. And he's already gotten it. So he's when Larks is shooting at him, he is swatting the bullets out of the air with his billy club. And that's how Larks dies. He fires his gun at Matt Murdock. Matt whips out the billy club and deflects the bullet pretty much straight back on his path to hit Larks in the forehead the physics teacher in me has serious questions about how much momentum you could pull up with a billy club i'll buy it the way Andesenti did where he deflected it enough so it didn't hit him it went into the wall behind him instead but that is a massive turnaround he had a lot of power in the arm to make this happen
1: then again i think this goes back to they never really establish any of his powers in this they never really say this is how fast he is these are the senses he has and all of that and i i agree with you blaine to be honest with you Uh, Again, as I was rereading this this morning, and, you know, I saw him deflect that one bullet, I'm like, okay, you know, I'll I'll give it once. And then he hits the other bullet back into the guy right in between the eyes. I would have much rather seen a lot of different resolves for that. Also, it's kind of hard to buy that he doesn't want to kill him when he's just killed everybody else. (laughs) Yeah,
0: he's not. Some of them may have just been severely beaten in that mob scene,
1: but it just seems odd that this is the point where he gets
0: a moral conscience about killing people. Yeah, this Matt Murdock has definitely been treated as the kind of guy... He doesn't particularly care if you survive the beating he gives you. His goal is to make sure the beating is severe enough that you will still be on the ground when he's done and walking away from the scene. Maybe you, you're alive with medical attention. Maybe you're not. Whatever's most convenient is the way he's going to go. We get a little bit of a scene where you know the kingpin is starting to to say, okay, who is this Daredevil? Why does he worry me so? This is the part that actually bothers me the most out of this entire miniseries. There's only, I mean, going through this, this series, the only person who heard him say his name out loud is Larks. Larks and Mickey are the only ones who know he's using the name Daredevil. And I don't think Mickey's talking to the Kingpin, because if she was, she'd be in trouble again and that would have to intervene. That's a whole other story that got left out. And Larks isn't talking to anyone, short of a seance. So why does the kingpin know that Daredevil is the guy who shut this business down? Anyway, so from here, Matt realizes his home is New York, not Boston. He's been fired. He doesn't care. He starts a partnership with Foggy. They toss a coin to decide who they're going to name it after, and it's Stick who catches the coin and says, yeah, watch your back, kid. In the quarter, it came up tails. So you come in second. So don't get cocky. So we don't see how the coin came up. I don't know if it came up tails or not. But that's why it's Nelson and Murdoch rather than Murdoch and Nelson, is because Stick intervened, gave him a talking to, then we see this is where Matt takes on the name Daredevil. And there's a nice little two-page spread at the end where Matt jumps off the rooftops and we see the various iterations of the costume, starting with the yellow and black and going to the classic red. Even with a caption saying, the costume is probably a good idea, sewed so it myself, God only knows what it looks like which is the running commentary that Matt Murdock's original costume is the one that looks like it was designed by a blind guy.
1: Now, this issue, it was pretty much a constant action sequence through quite a bit of it, where Matt Murdock is just basically throwing himself into throngs of guys, beating them up, killing... He's killed many, many people throughout this, as evidenced by the grenade thing. The scene where he sets the explosives and blows up the dock, the way that it ties into well this is the reason that he's getting arrested, you're just kind of like, eh, he's a bit more recklessly destructive than we've seen in a lot of other iterations because he was the one that pulled the pin on the grenades, and you don't actually see the guys that he was beating or intending to kill in that scene, so it really does seem like he blew up the dock just to blow up the dock for funsies. The scene where he gets he breaks out the cop car and then he starts driving. And again, when we talk about Born Again, there's a very similar scene where he's chasing after somebody while driving a car. And I feel that in Born Again, they did a far better job of telling, you know, the emotional distress that he was going through being a blind man driving. Here, it was just kind of like, gotta catch up, gotta catch up, gotta catch up. And then it flashes to the scene where we're talking, where... He starts deflecting the bullets and then kills the main villain that was established in the last issue. And then he comes back to New York because this becomes his home. I do enjoy the scene and My mistake. They did introduce Stick, uh, and the fact that Matt Murdock's realized sticks in the restaurant through the scent again, and you can really tell that they were they were trying to establish that Stick was going to be a mentor and keep on showing back up again. And for me, it actually alludes to the fact that Stick was probably going to take him back and train him throughout the series at some point, uh, just because of the way they did that reintroduction and the way that he's a bit more jovial with them, whereas the last time he was just. kind of like, well, you failed me. I enjoy that splash line of the costume is probably a good idea. I sewed it myself. I would have liked to have seen them really, really exemplify the yellow costume when he was saying that though, (laughs) just because I think that would have been, you know, a bit more coy or glib, but they decide to not. And then you go to that great splash page where he has the billy club. Overall, the series, it was good. It was a bit too violent. It was a bit more murderous of a Daredevil or Matt Murdock than, to be honest with you, I enjoy. And, you know, I am a fan of vigilante justice to a certain degree, but this was just a bit too much. A lot of this origin, in my mind, read more like a Punisher story Mm -hmm. than it did like a Matt Murdock Daredevil story. And though, you know, they were probably alluding to the fact that Elektra had the hand being involved with the reason she heard voices. And as such, they really did just put her off as being a big bag of crazy more than anything. Like, she was getting
0: up to typhoid Mary levels in this. (laughs) Yeah, I do prefer Electra being introduced before the hand gets her fingers in her. So you get a much more sympathetic character. You understand why Matt has fallen so head over heels for her. Here, it's just... I don't see why he is so head over heels for her. it's just, it's like he's devoted himself to following the rules or he tells himself he has, and he sees a rule breaker. So that's it opposite the track. But this Matt Murdoch may have decided when he was young that the rules were important and he was going to study them, but he's still not following them.
1: Yeah. And, you know, really throughout this entire thing, I think it's evidence that this Matt Murdoch is not a by the book rule follower. He is, I'll follow the rules until something pisses me off. And then I'm just going to go ape on everybody. Then I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to smash face and we're going to go. So again, like this Matt Murdock has far more of a Punisher feel to him than it does a Matt Murdock feel to him.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's, as you said, I don't, I don't think this TV Matt Murdock with the Punisher would have had anywhere near the interaction we have. My favorite Punisher moments are all in Daredevil comics. And a lot is just because of the contrast between the two characters. And I don't care for heroes that plan to kill the villains. I prefer it when they look for every other option first and possibly let them go rather than killing them. That's the kind of heroes I like. That's the kind of hero that the six one six or the main continuity Matt Murdock is. I mean, with the exception of Bullseye. I can't remember him making a conscious choice to kill people. And with Bullseye with Bullseye
1: that was that was really him pushed to the edge as well though. And you know, just because I did read that this morning. Even if you look at the scene, which we will talk about in a further podcast, there is still a hint of ambiguity to the scene as to whether Bullseye let go or he let go. So you still do have that. And, you know, yeah. throughout the narrative, it is evidence that it probably was Mad or Daredevil that let go. In that scene, it does still have that little bit of ambiguity.
0: It does. Um, even in Shadowland, as much as Matt denies it, there is the chance that the demons from the hand had already gotten a hold of him when he killed Bullseye there. Yeah. Shadowland, by the way, did not make the list of top 75 Marvel stories of all time. Oh,
1: but how? It was so well written. <laughs> Yeah, the the writers on
0: Shadowland have said that it was not the comic they wanted to write because they did not have the time. Yeah. They they would have preferred another eight to nine months of lead time telling other stories, but that would have thrown off the event cycle. Shadowland will be a discussion for another day, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, but suffice it to say, I'm not convinced Shadowland would make the list of the top 75 Daredevil stories, let alone top 75 Marvel stories. I could agree with that. (laughs) Um, anyway, one of the things that we like to look at with these is the impact that this particular story had on the industry or on that, the comic continuity. And this is one where I can't point to anything that came specifically out of this miniseries. A lot of these were expanding on elements that already existed. The only thing that I could think of this adding is Daredevil's body count. And that has been explicitly contradicted in later issues where he says Bullseye was the first and only. That is That's part of the history. It didn't become the TV series, so at this point, I think the most influence that we're going to see from this incarnation of Daredevil, we saw a little bit of this feed into the 2003 film, and it looks like we're going to see some of it feed into the the April Netflix series that's coming and feeding into the Defenders. But, yeah, even that is still...
1: This is very, very clearly a standalone graphic novel. As you said, it borrowed elements rather than created new elements. Um, it, it did increase the body count and you know, there were some allusions to other things. but in terms of Daredevil and any of his overarching stories, just because of the nature of it, it didn't really add anything. No. and
0: even we may have alluded to it. we like to talk about you know why it landed at this point in the tournament, why we think it's in the tournament? Daredevil is easily my favorite comic book character. As he is mine. Yeah. And I'm honestly not sure why this particular Daredevil story made the list. I mean what we have for Daredevil, we've got the Mandadult Fear mini miniseries made the list. Issue 181 made the list. Born again made the list. I'm surprised that we didn't see, you know, the Frank Miller run as a whole showing up. I'm surprised we didn't see, you know, Follow the Kingpin showing up. I think there's there are a number of better Daredevil stories than this one out there.
1: Daredevil, the target number one, the unfinished miniseries not showing up. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, and I would have to agree with you. Um, just remind me, was the Kevin Smith run on here? Did it make the top 75? I uh, know
0: Guardian Devil did not make the Guardian top 75. Devil.
1: You know, and as Blaine, Daredevil has been my favorite superhero since I, have a kid, since I was a kid. I've read in one way, shape, or form pretty much every issue of Daredevil that there is. And there are a lot of stories that I would have put before this one as well. And as I just mentioned, Guardian Devil would have been one of them. I really did enjoy that story. And yeah, again, as Blaine said... I can see why this would have a certain appeal to it, just because it does have, you know, that gritty, dark guy that I think a lot of people want Daredevil to be. And I even will agree, there have been times where they've just written him far too complacent and passionate and all of that for my liking. But I think this just swerves far too much to the other end of the spectrum for Daredevil. And all in all, it's a far darker interpretation of the character. It really exemplifies the devil as a opposed to the dare shall we say (laughs) but
0: yeah Yeah, So pretty much the only other things we have or just see if we have any deeper meanings if there's you know any subtext that we could pull out of this the next time somebody tells me something mean i'm gonna beat them up maybe i'll (laughs) kill them (laughs) yeah i can usually find some sort of message here but i mean the only message i could see is be independent do things for yourself but if looking at the way this plays out, you're going to question whether that's a good idea. There's also no real consequences
1: to any actions in it either. Yeah. With the exception of the one, how do you say, female entertainment in industry employee falling to her death needlessly. I think the comic really, in through a lot of times, they toss out this idea of follow the rules, do this and this and this. And he flashes back to it that, oh, I didn't follow the rules, so all of this happened. But there's no consequences, and he just continually doesn't follow the rules. Like, this Matt Murdock is a... He's very very reckless, I guess is what I'm looking. Whereas before you have a lot of the very very cold calculated Matt
0: Murdock, where he thinks and he finds other ways and yeah, I mean, Foggy follows the rules almost exclusively and does not come out of this well. Daredevil is hit and miss, and his results are hit and miss. Elektra and the Kingpin, are the other two main characters here, they ignore the rules at every opportunity. And as far as their personal stories go, they're working out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, Kingpin ends up with fewer millions than he would have had because of Matt Murdock, but he still ends up as the Kingpin with an iron grip on the city. It's Yeah, I'm not sure there's any positive messages here aside from, you know, take control of things and do your own actions. But, you know, maybe the bad guy's finished first. It, it doesn't work out well. For the people who try to live the state in Nero.
1: Yeah, this is just... Again, as Blaine said, we're pretty much going to be beating a dead horse, or as Daredevil would do, beat a thug. There's not much more to say than... I don't think there's any lesson we can really take from this. So, on the list of top 75 comic books to read to your children as moral stories, I would probably not have this
0: one make the top 75. No. No, it's if you're looking for Daredevil stories to read, I would say... Daredevil 181 also made the list. That is a great story as the culmination of Frank Miller's work. Read it, but read it after starting with 168 and go straight through. Born Again is a great one to read. Classic. Even the first 25 issues, if you enjoy 60s comics, are not bad. You could see part of the reason Daredevil struggled for popularity is because he lacked a good villain for the early part. Say the first 129 issues of his series. Bring back Stiltman. Well, Mark Wade showed that Stiltman can work. Yeah, no. I... But it took Mark Wade to show that. I remember that. <laughs> So that about wraps it up for this episode. You can join us next week when we discuss Avengers number four, which came in at number 69 in the tournament. If you want to read along yourselves, you can find that one in e- reprinted in Avengers annual number three, Marvel Masterworks, the Avengers volume one, Captain America number 400, Avengers Masterworks straight paperback with just various Avengers issues in it. Marvel Milestone editions, Avengers number four, essential Avengers volume one, 100 greatest Marvels of all time issue number five, Marvel visionaries, Jack Kirby volume one, Avengers classics, number number four, Comixology, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. So Avengers number four is not hard to track down. And I realize now, I also forgot the GitCorp DVD-ROM with the Avengers Collections has it as well. So if you're looking for that issue, you should be able to find it just about anywhere you're used to looking for old comics. If you want to find the original, then you have a bigger budget than I do. So, Anthony, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me, Blaine. I look forward to the next time. So those of you listening at home, please, again, feel free to review the show on iTunes or on Stitcher. You could track down the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels podcast forum on Facebook and participate in the discussions there. And thank you for listening. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. Well, you get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare?